From the Centre for Corporate Health and Resilia, this is Psychosocial Safety at Work, a podcast where we pick the brains of our experts, clients and partners on how best to navigate psychosocial safety in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicola Johnston, and today I'm joined by our National Manager of Psychological Services, Deborah Brodowski. Hi, Deb. Hi, thanks for having me. So today we are going to be talking about family and domestic violence. Friday the 19th of November is White Ribbon Day and for us it's a time to create awareness of how to prevent violence against women and what workplaces can actually do to address family and domestic violence in the workplace. I know the pandemic and subsequent restrictions have undoubtedly increased the intensity of abuse and violence for victim survivors of family and domestic violence. Deb, could you elaborate on the impact that the pandemic has actually had? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting the way we've seen the uh, cycle of family and domestic violence play out during the course of the pandemic. So I'm, I have no doubt that it is obviously um, uh, playing out throughout the pandemic. In times where restrictions are high, we have found that um, incidences where we have been called into support have reduced. So there have been a lower incidences in terms of support for notifications of family and domestic violence. However, when restrictions start to be lifted, what we've seen is an increase in incidences of family and domestic violence. And when we talk about family and domestic violence, it comes in various forms. So it's not only the physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse that we typically uh, characterise with uh, family and domestic violence. It's that sense of coercive control. So one of the hypotheses that we're working with in terms of why that cycle played out was in times of high restrictions, there was obviously high control. There wasn't really anywhere you could go to. Whereas in times of uh, restrictions being eased and freedoms being opened up, that sense of those behaviour, those family and domestic violence behaviours, the coercive control may have escalated during those times. That's a hypothesis that we're obviously uh, just considering at this point in time. Mm, it, it makes sense, you know, people going back to the workplace and perpetrators possibly trying to keep them at home so that they do have that control. It will be difficult, I think, for victim survivors to navigate that. So, Deb, when it comes to workplaces, uh, we all have our different roles at work, HR, uh, professional, manager, team member. Um, What are our roles in terms of supporting people uh, who may be experiencing family and domestic violence at home? Yeah, great question. And I think in this space, I think the key consideration is to create a psychologically safe space for the person. Forcing someone to disclose a a family and domestic violence uh, experience is um, very challenging. There's a lot of stigma still attached to family and domestic violence reporting. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of, I can't believe this has happened to me, a lot of shock and surprise. And people are obviously, who are victim survivors, are operating from their stress response. So there's low trust in the community. So we have to kind of create a space where people are open and feel safe to disclose a uh, a family domestic violence experience. 
So that means upskilling in different ways our stakeholders in the organisation about what do we do in terms of a response and what does our response framework look like? So at the very foundation, HR, WHS professionals with the bigger organisations where there are security guards um, available, having those people upskilled in terms of a framework. So what do we do when we receive a disclosure? What does our policy look like? How is our policy readily available? Do we have a family and domestic violence, a safety plan that we can work with? Does our EAP provider have psychologists who are skilled in family and domestic violence and could put a personal safety plan in place? So really upskilling those HR professionals to be able to take action in a safe and supportive way when a disclosure occurs. For the people leaders, it's about understanding what their role and responsibilities are. So being able to listen and be open and non-judgmental when a victim survivor does disclose that they're experiencing family and domestic violence and be that first connector of support to say, I want to be able to assist you you don't deserve this. Let's bring in HR, WHS, a safe person in the organisation who can help us navigate those next pieces of support for you. So upskilling the people leaders in that space to create a psychologically safe space for a disclosure as well. Some organisations also have mental health first aid officers or wellbeing champions. So upskilling them as well because they can be a fabulous safe resource. They can be a beacon of hope for people where a victim survivor wants to disclose. So making sure they're upskilled, they know that there is a policy or procedure in place, they know what the framework looks like, they understand what their role is in terms of, again, connecting for support. And then for all employees, it is really about creating a safe culture where family and domestic violence isn't stigmatised, where people aren't judged and shamed for bringing their whole selves to work so that a disclosure can be forthcoming and people can feel that they can be open and vulnerable in terms of their circumstances. So with such a framework in place, it really does build a really strong safety net of support. And that's essentially what we want. We want that person who is feeling unsafe at home, who is feeling at risk at home, to have that workplace as a safe haven where they can disclose, where they can share what's going on. And we can start bit by bit, slowly but surely, connecting them in to pieces of support to help them feel safe. Often with victim survivors, the workplace is the only setting in which they probably do feel safe and can actually start and put plans and that sort of thing into action without having the perpetrator, you know, in the vicinity. Um, so workplaces do have such a significant role in, you know, the prevention and intervention space when it comes to family and domestic violence. Absolutely right, Nicola. And and I think with that, it is about kind of then tuning into what the early warning signs are because they do play such a key role. It just may mean that that key role in keeping someone safe, it could also pose as a risk because we know people's performance might slip, their conduct or absenteeism may differ. And if we don't have that lens on, if we don't have that wide lens to see what the early warning signs are, not to think, oh gosh, they're automatically experiencing family and domestic violence. But if we don't have that wide lens to say, they're not okay, I need to have a check-in to see how I can support them their biggest protective factor could be a risk of losing their job. And we don't want that. We want to kind of maintain that safety net of support. 
Yeah. And Deb, I wonder if you could elaborate on that. What is it about maintaining work that is a big protective factor for victim survivors? Absolutely. So if we think about the way the brain's functioning for a minute for a victim survivor, someone who is experiencing family and domestic violence is constantly activating their stress response. So the stress response comes from a part of the brain called the amygdala. It is our flight or fight response. It's a survival mechanism. It has helped us evolve over thousands of years to keep us safe from threat. Someone who is a victim or survivor who is experiencing family and domestic violence is constantly under siege in their own home. They're, they're mm. be coercive control, uh, physical, sexual, emotional, financial, spiritual, all those forms of abuse, irrespective of what they're experiencing, that stress response is being activated. So they're always on alert, walking on eggshells in anticipation for what might happen next. We often hear perpetrators say, you made me do this. It's actually more so that the victim survivors are doing everything they can to minimise any kind of um, outburst. It's the perpetrator's for whatever reason, uh, inability to regulate their emotion, regulate their behaviour that causes the outburst, not the victim survivor. So from a workplace context, removed from their home situation where they're obviously working outside of the home, it could be the only safe place where they're able to, for a moment, switch off their stress response, for a moment, feel like they can be human, feel like that no one's watching over their short shoulder, anticipating the next move of what might happen, what risk may present. So that's how come the workplace is such a safe space. They can be who they normally are without risk of an explosion happening, of an incident of domestic violence occurring. Mm. And when, if we take it back even a step before this, um, workplaces play such an important role in the prevention of family and domestic violence. Um, it's these safe cultures, but it's also these cultures that don't tolerate any sort of joke or inappropriate, um, you know, sexual joke. Um, if, if there's a culture in the workplace where those are not accepted, we'll start and see that shift. Isn't that right? Absolutely. It starts with changing culture and seeing people as individuals and accepting individual differences and um, focusing on a lens of diversity and inclusion where sexist jokes aren't tolerated, where there's not one rule for one gender or one culture over another, where there's, um, you know, uh, everyone is feeling like they can contribute and have a say. So these are really key indicators to make sure that we're on a level playing field. As soon as we start creating cultures where some people are favoured over others, some people get preferential treatment, some people um, are, are judged more harshly, that creates that inequity where therefore people start feeling scared and psychologically unsafe to bring them whole selves to work. And so if someone does actually disclose at work that they are experiencing family and domestic violence. When it comes to safety planning, can you talk a bit about what role the workplace plays in putting a safety plan in place? And then when should they be engaging, you know, a specialist, an expert in this field to help put together another sort of safety plan? 
Absolutely. So from a workplace perspective, a workplace's role is to obviously have a safe place for people to disclose where they can bring them whole selves to work, um, to be reassured and to be able to be able to um, have the supports from their from their teams, their, their, their leaders, HR accordingly. So from a workplace safety perspective, the workplace safety plan can look at things like how can we make sure we're ensuring your safety at work? Do we need to divert your phone away from directly coming through to you so that we can buffer any contact? Do we need to have someone uh, walk you to the bus stop or, you know, have a car on site where possible and, and, and therefore have that access? Do we need to, if there's security, show them a picture of that of the person who um, uh we're concerned about so that they're prevented from coming into the building. Do we need to understand any kind of AVO that might be in place uh, and what those restrictions are? So a workplace safety plan really incorporates how I keep that person safe at work. If they're not coming to work, one of the key things is who do I escalate to? If I if they don't turn up unexpectedly, who do I escalate to that is safe? Because their emergency contact tends to be our partner if we're in a relationship. So that's mm-hmm. going to be a huge risk if that person is obviously the perpetrator of family and domestic violence. So talking to them about if I don't hear from you and you don't turn up to work and I'm concerned, who can I escalate to to kind of check that out? Who is your new safe person that I can link in with? So the workplace safety plan is to keep that person safe whilst they're at work. Linking in with a provider that can create a personal safety plan and start getting those kind of personal safety elements in place outside of the work is also equally important to do immediately. Hmm. So when we're talking about those family and domestic violence situations, particularly if someone's fled a situation, making sure that we've got all of these in place. Um, if someone's disclosed that they're experiencing but not about to flee, we also need to make sure we've got a personal safety plan and a workplace safety plan in place. And a personal safety plan, again, looks at how can I keep myself safe at night? Is it something that if, if, if I haven't left the relationship, is there something I can do in relation to emergency contacts? Is there a safe person I can contact? Is there a safe process that I can follow to make sure that I am safe at night? If there are children involved, what does that look like? So how am I going to make sure I can keep my children safe? So one of the key things we're not doing in this space is telling someone to leave because that's obviously a risk in and of itself. So we're working and walking with that person in terms of what is going to be most helpful for you to keep you safe and your family safe at work and at home. And I think that's the key that we need to focus on in the immediate time frame because that's going to help calm the stress response. If we can keep someone safe, we're going to be able to get them to calm that stress response so that they can think in the more longer term. They can't do that when they're worried about their own safety. It's so true. And um, I wonder if we could now take a look at some tips on uh, having conversations around family and domestic violence, especially when someone has disclosed to you um, that they are experiencing this. What are the things we should say? What are the things we shouldn't say? Um, because just like with all these conversations about well-being and safety, we often don't have the conversations because we don't feel like we're experts um, and we don't want to say the wrong thing. What What are your tips? 
Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. People avoid having a conversation because they're worried about saying the wrong thing. So they say, I'm just not going to say anything at all. So I think the most helpful thing to think about in this space is to understand you're coming from a position of support and care and with that kind of positioning in mind, that's going to be a really great lens to um, support someone. So thinking about, you know, comments like this, you know, you don't deserve this, this is a really important thing to kind of mention because people can think who are experiencing family and domestic violence, I've brought this on myself, I'm, um, you know, it's my fault that this has happened, um, which, you know, to reinforce that stress response, people start thinking those negative negative thought processes about I've deserved this. So reassuring them, this is not your fault. Together we'll get through this. I'm here to support you. Help me understand how I can help you. What is going to be most helpful and supportive for you? Those kinds of phrases in terms of what's most helpful, what's most um, going to be of the most support to you is really beneficial in the big picture for someone to calm their stress response so they can start thinking longer term. And that's the goal in terms of that that conversation piece. Well-intentioned people can say unhelpful pieces where they say things like, I can't believe this is happening to you. They seemed like such a nice person. I couldn't see this coming. Uh, What did you do for that to happen? Um, He seemed like such a nice person to start off with. It can't be um, that bad. If you're staying with him, it can't be that bad. And I know they're well-meaning comments, but they do have the perception on the part of the victim survivor that I'm to blame here. It's reinforcing that negative thought process that I'm I'm at fault here. I'm to blame here. Mm. I don't deserve um, happiness in life. And And it puts that seed of doubt in there that you don't believe what they're experiencing and that's such a big thing just to be heard and believed is such an important aspect couldn't agree more absolutely and and that again by actually being believed and feeling like you're being heard that's a great first step to calm that stress response so that people can start thinking more proactively more bigger picture rather than reactive and um you know in response to threat you touched on it before as well about it's not really our role to be telling people what they should be doing. We know that that when someone leaves a family domestic violence situation, that that is the point that they're most dangerous. So what are some other things we could say to them instead of you should just leave that might lead them to the right support services? Yeah, that's right. The research shows that within the first two months of leaving a relationship is the highest chance of being killed. So people aren't going to leave until they feel like they've got enough safety and support to be able to do so. The risk is high. So what we need to do is make sure that for them to feel safe to leave, the positioning we come from is how can I help you feel safe? What's a connection that I can help you form to feel safe? So that could be calling, you know, fabulous helplines like 1-800-RESPECT. It could be helping them find some um, legal support. And we've got to do it gradually because, again, there's a lot of um, mistrust, understandably, because they're activating from their stress response. So what's one thing we can do this week or this month to be able to help you? So step-by-step providing those connections of support are most helpful. Saying things like, right, these are the 10 things we need to do this week. It's too overwhelming. 
It's telling them what to do, which in their mind is, again, someone controlling their lives and it's not going to have the right message. So you're walking with them, you're supporting them, you're trying to provide a pathway in terms of for them feeling safe in a non-judgmental and supportive way. So Deb, as we wrap up, um, we know that family and domestic violence is no straight line. Um, so supporting someone can be a bit of a roller coaster of emotions for us as well, who is supporting the person. So I wonder if you could provide some tips on how to maintain your own well-being um, through this time and and not get that fatigue or, or feel despondent that maybe they're not handling things how you would like them to handle things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the pieces that you picked up on there is we all have our own predisposed notions about how something should play out. And the key thing here is we're not in that situation. We're not that person who's experiencing what is happening for them at that point in time. So for ourselves, I think it's really important for those that are supporting someone who's experiencing family and domestic violence, self-care is quite critical. So whilst you're caring for someone and supporting someone, looking after yourself is important too. So whether that is accessing EAP support yourself, whether it is accessing other personal or professional supports to make sure that you are equipped and able to care for the well-being of someone else. You're playing such an important and critical role in helping someone navigate this long and complex journey, um, you know, making sure that you've got um, things in your toolkit to make sure this is sustainable for you um, is really critical to the success um, of, of that, that long-term support. Mm, mm. Well, thank you so much, Deb, for speaking with me. You've provided such great insights. It's such an important area um, that we need to be looking at in our society and clearly workplaces can play such a significant role in all areas from prevention, intervention and recovery when it comes to family and domestic violence. So thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. If you would like any information on specialist family and domestic violence services for your workplace, head on over to cfch.com.au or call us on 02-8243-1500. And if you or someone you know is experiencing family and domestic violence, please call 1800RESPECT to learn how to stay safe and what supports are available. <music>